Section 9 of In the Midst of Life, Tales of Soldiers and Civilians. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. In the Midst of Life, Tales of Soldiers and Civilians by Ambrose Bierce. Section 9, A Son of the Gods, Study in the Present Tense. A breezy day and a sunny landscape, an open country to right and left and forward, behind a wood. In the edge of this wood, facing the open but not venturing into it, long lines of troops halted. The wood is alive with them and full of confused noises, the occasional rattle of wheels as a battery of artillery goes into position to cover the advance the hum and murmur of the soldiers talking, a sound of innumerable feet in the dry leaves that strew the interspaces among the trees, horse commands of officers. Detached groups of horsemen are well in front, not altogether exposed, many of them intently regarding the crest of a hill a mile away in the direction of the interrupted advance. For this powerful army, moving in battle order through a forest, has met with a formidable obstacle, the open country. The crest of that gentle hill a mile away has a sinister look. It says, Beware. Along it runs a stone wall extending to left and right a great distance. Behind the wall is a hedge. Behind the hedge are seen the tops of trees in rather straggling order. Among the trees, what? It is necessary to know. Yesterday, and for many days and nights previously, we were fighting somewhere. Always there was cannonading, with occasional keen rattlings of musketry, mingled with cheers, our own or the enemy's, we seldom knew, attesting some temporary advantage. This morning at daybreak the enemy was gone. We have moved forward across his earthworks, across which we have so often vainly attempted to move before, through the debris of his abandoned camps, among the graves of his fallen, into the woods beyond. How curiously we had regarded everything! How odd it all had seemed! Nothing had appeared quite familiar the most commonplace objects, an old saddle, a splintered wheel, a forgotten canteen, everything had related something of the mysterious personality of those strange men who had been killing us. The soldier never becomes wholly familiar with the conception of his foes as men like himself. He cannot divest himself of the feeling that they are another order of beings, differently conditioned, in an environment not altogether of the earth. The smallest vestiges of them rivet his attention and engage his interest. He thinks of them as inaccessible, and, catching an unexpected glimpse of them, they appear farther away, and therefore larger, than they really are, like objects in a fog. He is somewhat in awe of them. From the edge of the wood leading up the acclivity are the tracks of horses and wheels, the wheels of cannon. 
the yellow grass is beaten down by the feet of infantry clearly they have passed this way in thousands they have not withdrawn by the country roads this is significant it is the difference between retiring and retreating that group of horsemen is our commander his staff and escort he is facing the distant crest holding his field-glass against his eyes with both hands his elbows needlessly elevated it is a fashion it seems to dignify the act we are all addicted to it suddenly he lowers the glass and says a few words to those about him two or three aides detach themselves from the group and canter away into the woods along the lines in each direction we did not hear his words but we know them tell general x to send forward the skirmish line those of us who have been out of place resume our positions the men resting at ease straighten themselves and the ranks are reformed without a command some of us staff officers dismount and look at our saddle girths those already on the ground remount galloping rapidly along in the edge of the open ground comes a young officer on a snow-white horse his saddle blanket is scarlet what a fool no one who has ever been in action but remembers how naturally every rifle turns toward the man on a white horse no one but has observed how a bit of red enrages the bull of battle that such colors are fashionable in military life must be accepted as the most astonishing of all the phenomena of human vanity they would seem to have been devised to increase the death rate this young officer is in full uniform as if on parade he is all agleam with bullion a blue and gold edition of the poetry of war a wave of derisive laughter runs abreast of him all along the line but how handsome he is with what careless grace he sits his horse he reins up within a respectful distance of the corps commander and salutes the old soldier nods familiarly he evidently knows him a brief colloquy between them is going on the young man seems to be preferring some request which the elder one is indisposed to grant. Let us ride a little nearer. Ah! Too late. It is ended. The young officer salutes again, wheels his horse, and rides straight toward the crest of the hill. A thin line of skirmishers, the men deployed at six paces or so apart, now pushes from the wood into the open. The commander speaks to his bugler, who claps his instrument to his lips. Tra-la-la, tra-la-la, the skirmishers halt in their tracks. Meanwhile the young horseman has advanced a hundred yards. He is riding at a walk, straight up the long slope, with never a turn of the head. How glorious! Gods, what would we not give to be in his place, with his soul? He does not draw his sabre his right hand hangs easily at his side the breeze catches the plume in his hat and flutters it smartly the sunshine rests upon his shoulder straps lovingly like a visible benediction straight on he rides 
Ten thousand pairs of eyes are fixed upon him with an intensity that he can hardly fail to feel. Ten thousand hearts keep quick time to the inaudible hoofbeats of his snowy steed. He is not alone. He draws all souls after him. But we remember that we laughed. On and on, straight for the hedge-lined wall, he rides. Not a look backward. Oh, if he would but turn, if he could but see the love, the adoration, the atonement. Not a word is spoken. The populous depths of the forest still murmur with their unseen and unseeing swarm, but all along the fringe is silence. The burly commander is an equestrian statue of himself. The mounted staff officers, their field glasses up, are motionless all. The line of battle in the edge of the wood stands at a new kind of attention, each man in the attitude in which he was caught by the consciousness of what was going on. All these hardened and impenitent man-killers, to whom death in its awfulest forms is a fact familiar to their everyday observation, who sleep on hills trembling with the thunder of great guns, dine in the midst of streaming missiles, and play at cards among the dead faces of their dearest friends, all are watching with suspended breath and beating hearts the outcome of an act involving the life of one man. Such is the magnetism of courage and devotion. If now you should turn your head, you would see a simultaneous movement among the spectators, a start, as if they had received an electric shock. And looking forward again to the now distant horseman, you would see that he has in that instant altered his direction, and is riding at an angle to his former course. The spectators suppose the sudden deflection to be caused by a shot, perhaps a wound. But take this field-glass and you will observe that he is riding toward a break in the wall and hedge. He means, if not killed, to ride through and overlook the country beyond. You are not to forget the nature of this man's act. It is not permitted to you to think of it as an instance of bravado, nor, on the other hand, a needless sacrifice of self. If the enemy has not retreated, he is in force on that ridge. The investigator will encounter nothing less than a line of battle. There is no need of pickets, videttes, skirmishers, to give warning of our approach. Our attacking lines will be visible, conspicuous, exposed to an artillery fire that will shave the ground the moment they break from cover, and for half the distance to a sheet of rifle bullets in which nothing can live. In short, if the enemy is there, it would be madness to attack him in front. He must be maneuvered out by the immemorial plan of threatening his line of communication, as necessary to his existence as to the diver at the bottom of the sea his air-tube. But how ascertain if the enemy is there? There is but one way. Somebody must go and see. The natural and customary thing to do is to send forward a line of skirmishers. 
but in this case they will answer in the affirmative with all their lives. The enemy, crouching in double ranks behind the stone wall and in cover of the hedge, will wait until it is possible to count each assailant's teeth. At the first volley a half of the questioning line will fall, the other half before it can accomplish the predestined retreat. What a price to pay for gratified curiosity! At what a dear rate an army must sometimes purchase knowledge! Let me pay all, says this gallant man, this military Christ. There is no hope, except the hope against hope that the crest is clear. True, he might prefer capture to death. So long as he advances, the line will not fire. Why should it? He can safely ride into the hostile ranks and become a prisoner of war. But this would defeat his object. It would not answer our question. It is necessary either that he return unharmed or be shot to death before our eyes. Only so shall we know how to act. If captured, why, that might have been done by a half-dozen stragglers. Now begins an extraordinary contest of intellect between a man and an army. Our horseman, now within a quarter of a mile of the crest, suddenly wheels to the left and gallops in a direction parallel to it. He has caught sight of his antagonist. He knows all. Some slight advantage of ground has enabled him to overlook a part of the line. If he were here, he could tell us in words, but that is now hopeless. He must make the best use of the few minutes of life remaining to him, by compelling the enemy himself to tell us as much and as plainly as possible, which, naturally, that discreet power is reluctant to do. Not a rifleman in those crouching ranks, not a cannoneer at those masked and shotted guns, but knows the needs of the situation, the imperative duty of forbearance. Besides, there has been time enough to forbid them all to fire. True, a single rifle-shot might drop him and be no great disclosure. But firing is infectious and see how rapidly he moves, with never a pause except as he whirls his horse about to take a new direction, never directly backward towards us, never directly forward toward his executioners. All this is visible through the glass. It seems occurring within pistol-shot. We see all but the enemy, whose presence, whose thoughts, whose motives we infer. To the unaided eye there is nothing but a black figure on a white horse, tracing slow zigzags against the slope of a distant hill. So slowly they seem almost to creep. Now the glass again. He has tired of his failure, or sees his error, or has gone mad. He is dashing directly forward at the wall, as if to take it at a leap, hedge and all one moment only, and he wheels right about and is speeding like the wind straight down the slope, toward his friends, toward his death. 
Instantly the wall is topped with a fierce roll of smoke for a distance of hundreds of yards to right and left. This is instantly dissipated by the wind, and before the rattle of the rifles reaches us he is down. No, he recovers his seat. He has but pulled his horse upon its haunches. They are up and away. A tremendous cheer bursts from our ranks, relieving the insupportable tension of our feelings. And the horse and its rider? Yes, they are up and away. Away, indeed. They are making directly to our left, parallel to the now steadily blazing and smoking wall. The rattle of the musketry is continuous, and every bullet's target is that courageous heart. Suddenly a great bank of white smoke pushes upward from behind the wall. Another, and another, a dozen roll up before the thunder of the explosions and the humming of the missiles reach our ears, and the missiles themselves come bounding through clouds of dust into our covert knocking over here and there a man and causing a temporary distraction a passing thought of self the dust drifts away incredible that enchanted horse and rider have passed a ravine and are climbing another slope to unveil another conspiracy of silence to thwart the will of another armed host Another moment, and that crest, too, is in eruption. The horse rears and strikes the air with its forefeet. They are down at last. But look again. The man has detached himself from the dead animal. He stands erect, motionless, holding his saber in his right hand straight above his head. His face is toward us. Now he lowers his hand to a level with his face and moves it outward, the blade of the saber describing a downward curve. It is a sign to us, to the world, to posterity. It is a hero salute to death and history. Again the spell is broken. Our men attempt to cheer. They are choking with emotion. They utter hoarse, discordant cries. They clutch their weapons and press tumultuously forward into the open. The skirmishers, without orders, against orders, are going forward at a keen run like hounds unleashed. Our cannons speak, and the enemies now open in full chorus. To right and left, as far as we can see, the distant crest seeming now so near, erects its towers of cloud, and the great shot pitch roaring down among our moving masses. Flag after flag of ours emerges from the wood, line after line sweeps forth, catching the sunlight on its burnished arms. The rear battalions alone are in obedience. They preserve their proper distance from the insurgent front. The commander has not moved. He now removes his field-glass from his eyes and glances to the right and left. He sees the human current flowing on either side of him and his huddled escort, like tide waves parted by a rock. Not a sign of feeling in his face. He is thinking. 
Again he directs his eyes forward. They slowly traverse that malign and awful crest. He addresses a calm word to his bugler. Tra-la-la-la, tra-la-la-la. The injunction has an imperiousness which enforces it. It is repeated by all the bugles of all the subordinate commanders. The sharp metallic notes assert themselves above the hum of the advance and penetrate the sound of the cannon. To halt is to withdraw. The colors move slowly back. The lines face about and sullenly follow, bearing their wounded. The skirmishers return, gathering up the dead. Ah, those many, many needless dead! That great soul whose beautiful body is lying over yonder, so conspicuous against the sere hillside, could it not have been spared the bitter consciousness of a vain devotion? Would one exception have marred too much the pitiless perfection of the divine eternal plan? End of section 9